morning, Village Bible Church. It's great to be here with you. Great to have all of you here worshiping the Lord together. If you're with us online, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to open up God's Word, and I invite you to do so as well to John chapter 6, uh, where we'll find our passage this morning. And a few years ago, uh, before uh, my wife and I went out to the Indian Creek campus, we were part of the young adult small group here at Sugar Grove, and we went on a retreat uh, for a long weekend and rented like a cabin or a lake house and had spent a long weekend up there. And there was a family from the church that was gracious enough or maybe foolish enough to let us take their boat with us for the weekend. Um, before you think it was anything fancy, it was like a 12-foot fishing boat, maybe with a trolling motor. You know, like we're not going to really get into much trouble with that. But at least it let us uh, go out in the lake and enjoy that. Well, I was given the responsibility at the end of our weekend to take the boat back to the boat ramp uh, so we can get it loaded up on the trailer and get ready to come home. And I was pretty excited about it. I thought this will be a lot of fun. Uh, I'll enjoy this time, get uh, by myself out in the boat for a little bit. And that little bit turned into a longer bit than I had originally intended because it was windy that day. And so as I left the, the dock, I'm, I'm heading and the wind is just pushing me from my right uh, farther and farther to the shore. And I'm starting to kind of get a little bit worried. I was like, I don't want to hit someone else's boat or their dock. You know, this isn't even my boat. I'm starting to freak out about all these different possibilities uh, that could happen. And so I, I had the, the nose of the boat, the bow of the boat, about 45 degree angle, just so that I wouldn't go to shore. So I'm literally just traveling like this, you know, slowly. And I round the corner of the lake and I start going head on into the wind. And that light fishing boat, I was like, this is not going to make it. And I didn't feel like I was going anywhere. And that was only confirmed for me when I looked to my left to the shore. And I, ha I was going nowhere. Literally, I was staying in the same. I had that motor cranked as high as that thing could go. <laughs> There's people sitting over here. And I'm just like, hey, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. And I just remember feeling, like, I got to get up there. But I don't know how I'm going to do that. You know, the wind was just too strong. And I got to imagine that the disciples, obviously to a greater extent than mine, had a similar experience uh, while they're out in the Sea of Galilee, that what started for them is what really should have been a simple and easy trip across the Sea of Galilee became something altogether more difficult. The, they find themselves now in this difficult and frustrating and terrifying circumstance while they're stranded out in the water. At this point, our passage says that it's the fourth watch of the night. So, they left in evening, so I want to give you a picture here. Let's say they left somewhere around 6 o'clock in the evening. It's probably about 3 in the morning now, and they're about halfway there. you got to imagine some of the frustration. Now the storms are rising. It's getting windy. Uh, the wind's pushing against them, and i got to imagine the frustration that they must be feeling. I know I would have been exhausted and tapped. I would have just been done, and here they are rowing their hearts out in the middle of the night, all alone in the midst of the storm, and they got to be wondering, why did we leave? Why didn't we just wait till the morning? And we start to ask the question, well, what's this all about? I think Jesus is doing a great work, and John's helping us see things in the context of where he's at in his gospel right now about who Jesus is. Right before this, uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, or more realistically, the 20,000 ballpark, and I got to imagine in the midst of the storm and the chaos, as the disciples are rowing their hearts out there in the middle of their boat, I'm speculating, by the way, are baskets full of bread left over from that. 
That in the midst of the chaos of that storm, just a little subtle reminder of Jesus' power that they had just witnessed. But if you looked at Matthew and Mark's Gospels, you'd see that uh, they tell us that the, go- the disciples' hearts were hardened following the feeding of the 5,000. They're like, what? What? If only I could see that. And while the crowds uh, after that event seemingly started to get it, verse 14 of chapter 6, it says that this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. They're, they're making some connections. The crowds are starting to understand Jesus must be the, the fulfillment of what Moses talked about, etc. But they still screwed it up. And the disciples were all together missing it, their hearts hardened. So I think we find ourselves in this passage uh, with a great deal of intentionality by our Savior. Nothing he does is by coincidence or accident. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus actually sends his disciples out and he stays back. And I think that's where we jump in here that uh, like the crowds were beginning to understand in little bits, Jesus is wanting to reveal himself to the disciples. And what happens as we deal with a passage like this is a lot of times we make the passage about the disciples. And subsequently that means we make the passage about us. But I think John's purpose here is not to make it about the disciples. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the guys in our campus pastor meeting this week commented and said, it seems as though John strips away all of the things that really have to do with the disciples and focuses on Jesus. Right? He wants us to look at Jesus and get something about who Jesus is. That's what this passage is about. But yet Jesus has placed his disciples in this circumstance, I think, to teach them something. Namely, to help them answer this question, what is your hope placed in? So more than just providing you know, a chronological connection, how did we get from uh, that isolated place where we fed the 5,000 back to Capernaum, I think John's helping frame a theological picture of the state of the, the world, the condition of the human heart, and more importantly, the Savior who this Jesus is and what he's come to do. So much like last week uh, with the feeding of the 5,000, that should have raised some light bulbs for the crowd saying, okay, this reminds us of when uh, God provided manna in the wilderness to the people. And as we move into this one for his disciples, perhaps their mind goes back to Moses again. But this time to the crossing of the Red Sea. As they think back to that time when God parted the waters and the nation of Israel walked through on dry ground. And here we're going to see a great deliverance by our Savior. Again, like last week, superior to that of Moses. But before we get into understanding those things, it's helpful to pause and recognize what's going on with the disciples here. I think that's where we need to start for ourselves. Understanding God teaching us, revealing something to us about our own hearts, where we are at. Because as we reveal this and understand this, it will only help us to understand how great our Savior is and the deliverance that he offers. So Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. Both Israel and the disciples, if you were to compare them, if you want to, you could turn to Exodus chapter 14. That's where you'd find this. You might want to read it later. Both of them find themselves in rather desperate situations. Israel finds themselves cornered between the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies coming behind them. They're looking at their impending death. They are convinced that this is why Moses brought them out of Egypt, because there's no graves in Egypt, so you brought us out here to die. The disciples find themselves in the middle of this storm, struggling and struggling in the midst of this, wondering, i got to imagine, is this it for us? 
both of them in desperate situations. And we could typically apply something to this text and say, well, see, see, this text tells us that God just wants to deliver us from our storms. The disciples are in a storm. Jesus delivers them from it. God wants to deliver us from our storms. And I would say, brothers and sisters, sometimes that may be true, but not all the time. And certainly, I do not believe that's why John provides this story for us. I think there's a deeper application, a deeper understanding of this text that is called for. That God allows us at times, maybe even intends for us at times, to face the storms in life so that he may reveal something to us about who he is. That's what's happening for the disciples I don't think it's a coincidence that they find themselves after their hearts being hard after the feeding of the 5,000 alone without Jesus in the darkness, in the storm, in the middle of the sea. They need to learn something about themselves before they can learn something about their Savior. I think it's helpful for us to stop and see that Jesus is at work trying to help them understand that in their desperation, guys, in our desperation, it should lead us to seek the Savior. And our desperation should lead us to seek the Savior. Notice uh, where they're at, out in the the waters, in the midst of the storm. They're learning very quickly that they are helpless in their own strength. They're helpless in their own strength. These guys struggling, rowing their hearts out, I'm sure, against the wind and the waves. Getting nowhere. Somewhere around nine hours into this trip, halfway there, you got to think they're feeling, we still have a long ways to go. And they're giving it their all out there to get across the sea, not making any progress. But before we become just fixated on the physical circumstance that they're in, I believe Jesus is trying to use this circumstance to drive home a deeper point for them, to open their eyes to a deeper desperation that they need to be aware of, but oftentimes we neglect to focus on. That if we are desperate about our physical circumstances and our physical lives, how much more should we be concerned about our spiritual condition? He's trying to open their eyes to these things. And we've seen time and time again in the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples so focused on the physical and the material. And Jesus is saying, there's something more. And so for us, we need to stop and recognize that it's not just about the storms that you may face in your life, but What he wants to get to is your heart, the condition of your soul. Do you, like the disciples, have a hard heart? Are you finding yourself in the midst of a struggle, a spiritual struggle, not just a storm of life, wondering where you're going to find help and deliverance? Well, the world says that we need to just dig deeper. Look within yourself. Try harder. The power is within you. You just have to to find it. And I'm going to tell you guys, baloney. It's lies. It's feel good, but it's lies. The Word of God does not teach that. The Word of God says that we are utterly helpless in our own strength. As a matter of fact, it's because of our own strength that we got ourselves in the situation that we're in. We struggle with sin because of our natural flesh. You're not going to conquer sin in your own strength. You're not going to get there. You will find yourself in the middle of the sea, fighting the storm, struggling and struggling and struggling and getting nowhere. 
Don't just look within yourself. You need to look without yourself, outside of yourself, to Christ. Secondly, his disciples are learning that they're hopeless in their own solutions. These guys, four of the 12, remember, are fishermen by trade. No doubt this was not the first storm they'd been in on the water. They've been here. They've gone through the training. They know what they're supposed to do. And I don't want to make much out of little, but a little detail here in verse 19. It says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, their sails were gone. They put the sails down. The wind's against them. They know the strategy of sailing here. That's not going to be our help. Right now, what we're supposed to do is row, and yet they're not getting anywhere quick. And the world will tell us, and they will sell us a bill of solutions. All these books and podcasts and blogs and everything, five steps to, seven keys to, right? And we love these things. We eat these things up because they're palatable, they, they're logical, they maybe they're practical, and we just, we like this stuff. I heard one professor this last week in an interview say that you know, we have a tendency right now to be opening all these books written by winsome men. And his critique is not on the books, and it's not even on the, the authors. But it was on this. He said, yet as we read them, our Bibles sit closed next to it. Man, that hit home. Like, holy smokes. Because those things are great tools. But when we make them the end-all, be-all, <laughs> we're missing something. And we wonder at times, maybe why we struggle and struggle and toil in this spiritual fight and struggle that we have against sin because we're looking for the solutions in all the wrong places. We look for them in the wisdom of the world. And I, like I said, guys, I'm not bashing those things. But the world wants us to look to its wisdom when God calls us to look to his word. And if we will not do that, I believe we will find ourselves struggling, finding ourselves just feeling a little bit hopeless in this fight. I think Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples these very things, that in their own strength, and their own solutions, one of a couple things is going to happen. Number one, maybe you're going to find yourself continuing to struggle over and over and over again, perpetually in this state of struggle, never finding victory, and man, (laughs) What a hopeless feeling. Or number two, maybe you're going to find some level of uh, victory over a particular struggle, but when you've done it in your own strength, it just creates in your heart this attitude of pride and arrogance. Look what I've conquered. I've conquered this, right? And then you've got to ask in the depths of your heart, did you really conquer anything? Or like in sinking sand, have you just dug yourself deeper into a hole that you didn't even realize was happening? No, we need to look to Christ. We need to understand these things and ask this honest question, where is our hope placed? Not just in that one decision maybe you made in the past to follow Christ, but today and now, where's your hope? Where are you looking? Just like the feeding of the 5,000 would have brought to mind the provision of God in the wilderness and then looking at Jesus, how his provision is so much greater. So much for plentiful. I think this passage helps to offer and bring to mind that crossing of the Red Sea. That just like the deliverance that the nation of Israel experienced in Moses' leadership, how much greater is Jesus' deliverance? 
But to know that and understand it, we have to look to the heart, not just the circumstances. I think that's where Jesus is trying to work with his disciples, to show them something about who he is. So we understand that Jesus' deliverance, guys, saves us not just from the storms, but Jesus has come to deliver us from sin. In the same way that Moses delivered the Israelites from slavery and delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, Jesus, too, is delivering us yet in a greater way. Right before the nation of Israel found themselves at the Red Sea, that's where we get the Passover from, right? That last of the plagues uh, in which they would take the blood of the lamb, put it over their doorposts, and that, that became the first Passover. Isn't it interesting, as you look back at last week's uh, passage in verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then the passage almost seems to have nothing to do with necessarily the Passover. They're out in the wilderness and... A little bit of context, though, huh? So the Passover's taking place. They've, they've had bread, and now, now his disciples find themselves at the sea, just like the nation of Israel did. Now they're at the sea, and they're needing deliverance once again. But unlike Moses, who parted those seas, Jesus doesn't just part them and walk on the dry ground. Jesus walks on the water as if it's dry ground. Just say, hello, guys. Don't you get who I am? If you're going to place your hope in Moses, that's the accusation back in John 5. You've placed your hope in Moses to the Pharisees. I'm greater than Moses. I supersede him in every way. And Jesus wants his disciples to see this about him, to recognize who he is and what he's really come to do, what he's really come to deliver them from. That he is the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God. But more importantly, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. He is the perfection of what Moses was meant to signify and point to. Jesus is the one that the nation of Israel had been looking forward to all of this time. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story. And man, when his disciples would get this, if we get this, what a change that is in how we look at following our Savior. What a change it is in how we look at the scriptures as a whole. Now Jesus is just this, uh, he's a magnificent Savior and Messiah, not just one to come and, and solve our personal problems. It ushers us into something greater than ourselves. to the very story of God. And so both of the nation of Israel and the disciples found themselves at the sea. And the sea was often used in Jewish literature to uh, convey, or it's kind of like a metaphor of God's judgment or the chaos even of the world. And isn't it interesting that the disciples find themselves in the midst of the chaos and the storm in which Jesus comes. But I think what we're seeing is a picture of where the world was at. I think Jesus is trying to say, guys, look, this is what's happening right now. Take a step back and see what's really going on here. Look where his disciples are. They're in the darkness. They're alone. They're in the middle of the struggle. Jesus comes to them on the water. Do they recognize him right away? Nope. He reveals himself to them, and they take him into the boat, and he delivers them from the storm. There's your summary. Now, where's the world at? John tells us that the world was in darkness without Jesus. And then they struggle against sin. Even the Jewish people struggling 
toiling, relying on the works of the law, which brought them back time and time and time again, never truly getting anywhere, never really dealing with sin. And the light is coming into the darkness, but the darkness didn't recognize it. But that Jesus would reveal himself as the light, and some would welcome them in, would receive him. And John says to them, there's no condemnation. But to those who will not receive Christ, who do not believe in him, they are already condemned. Do you see the parallels of what's going on in the world, what's maybe going on in the hearts of Jesus' disciples, and the circumstance that he's putting them in? To say, guys, get it here. You've heard me teach. You maybe know who I am, but get who I am. And isn't God gracious enough to do that with us at times? We know a lot of stuff, but then he'll throw us in a circumstance where what we know has got to become real. And suddenly at that point you're like, wow. What a greater thing than I ever really thought it was. Because to know and to experience it, that'll awaken your soul. Jesus is after his disciples' hearts. Jesus is here doing this with the disciples to reveal to them and to us today that he is the fulfillment of Israel's story. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had been spoken of for years, the one who was anticipated and hoped for. Jesus offers true deliverance, deliverance not just from slavery, but slavery to sin. That's the deliverance that Jesus offers. And so, a couple of points here. What are we to do with this deliverance? Number one, submit to Jesus' purposes. The disciples find themselves in the middle of the sea, in the midst of the storm, not because of their disobedience, not because of their rebellion, but because Jesus wanted them to go there. Matthew and Mark help paint that picture. He, they say that Jesus forced the disciples to go. He said, guys, get out of here. And he stayed back. He wanted them to be there, and it was intentional that Jesus wasn't there with them. He had a plan and a purpose for this. In Exodus chapter 14 with the nation of Israel, they've left Egypt, and they're wandering now into the wilderness, and God says to Moses to take them to this specific spot for a purpose. This is what's going to happen. The Egyptians, they're going to come. They're going to pursue you. This is going to happen so that I will get glory over Pharaoh. This is verse 4 of Exodus 14. And all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God had a purpose to put Israel in that circumstance. Jesus had a purpose to put his disciples in the circumstance that they were in. Both of which so that people would see and recognize who God is. So let us pause in the circumstances of our life and submit ourselves to what God is doing. Say, so we, we may not understand. As a matter of fact, most of the time, you may not understand what God is teaching you in the midst of it. But submit to him because you never know what he is. God puts us in these times so that he may reveal himself to us. And so often we are quick to ask for deliverance. Lord, get me out of this. Can you solve this problem, this circumstance in my life? And I'm not here to say don't pray for deliverance, but I am here to say pray for more than deliverance. Pray that God would give you perspective so you could see from his vantage point 
that you would understand what he's trying to teach you and reveal to you. That you would understand who he is. That you would learn something and experience your God in a new way. Pray that he would give you strength. That he would sustain you in the storms of life. That he would allow you to be faithful. That he would watch over you. That's what it is to submit to him. This is not just about getting out of the storms. But it's about meeting Jesus in the midst of it. To see and know who he truly is. So we need to learn to submit ourselves to his purposes. Secondly, to stand on Jesus' power. In their own strength and solutions, the disciples weren't getting anywhere. They were left helpless and they were left hopeless, much like we are. The world was getting nowhere in their struggle against sin and endless toil, but it's in Jesus' power. It's in his conquering that there is victory. So we lean on him because he is the conqueror and the king, not you and not me. He is the one who has provided victory. And this is not just a message that's for an unbeliever. This is a message for all of us because how often do we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, know this but forget it? And we start to toil and struggle in our, in our walk with God, excuse me, in our own strength in our own wisdom, in our own plans, rather than relying on him and his victory all the time. John's point, brothers and sisters, is this, is that we would see and recognize Jesus' power to deliver his disciples in that circumstance so that we would also recognize his power to deliver us from sin. That as we look at Moses and his deliverance in the wilderness and with the people of Israel, we would recognize that it wasn't truly Moses' power ever. Moses was an agent for God, but it was God who would do these things. And so as Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus delivers his disciples and Jesus calms the storms and walks on the water, he is greater than Moses because instead of just speaking on behalf of God or acting on behalf of God, he is speaking and acting in equality with God. He is God, and that is different. He's greater. So we could come up with a a litany of ways that we could apply this to our lives, but if we fail to recognize those very truths and to really wrestle and let those things resonate and sink into our souls, then we may be again just looking at the seven steps to godly living if we miss sight of who the Savior is. The Israelites would see the power that the Lord displayed and used against the Egyptians. And so too we should see, brothers and sisters, the great power that Jesus used over the storm, but ultimately the great power that he used over sin. That's what this is about. To see Jesus for who he is. Because I think there's an implication in our passage Verse 21 says they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I think the implication is on the flip side of that coin that for those who do not receive Jesus, there is the same expected judgment that the Egyptians faced. Now I don't say that as fire and brimstone, but I just say that as spiritual reality. Jesus himself said it. For those who will not believe and receive him, they are already condemned. So receive Christ. Believe in who he is. The very things we're studying in this gospel 
show us and confirm that he has been sent by God, that he's not just a crazy man, but he is the Son of God, the Messiah, who alone is worthy of our praise. And lastly, that we would continue to learn the value of sitting in his presence. And I don't say this just as a means to say, okay, welcome Jesus in your life just to get your get-out-of-hell-free ticket, if you will. Because for John and for Jesus to be in the presence of God, you can't separate uh, coming to deliverance and living in deliverance. They're one and the same. Jesus says in John chapter 17 that it is, this is eternal life, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. To know God, right? To be with God. That's what it is to have eternal life. So you can't be delivered and have eternal life and not have Jesus. So this whole idea that's out there that we find, and maybe you find with people that you know and love, that's like, yeah, I'm for Jesus, and they want nothing to do with him on any other time of their life. That's, that's baloney. That's not the gospel and the truth that Jesus taught. That's not the way it was designed to be. We don't manipulate Jesus into delivering us by just showing up to church. That we just, if we pray enough, then, you know, just to kind of keep things on the good side. That is not how it works. But to remain in fellowship with God. As we'll study in the rest of this gospel, the disciples didn't experience this and just say, all right, peace out, Jesus, and go on their own way. They walk with him. They remain with him. That's what it is for you. If you've experienced this deliverance from sin, you continue to walk with him, continue to be with him, continue to learn and sit in his presence. And I would argue, and you'd probably agree with me, that you can tell the person who sits regularly in the presence of God, ask somebody about their God, and you'll hear it in their voice. The person who's regularly with God, you can hear it in the way they talk about him. You can see it in their face as their face lights up. Even in the midst sometimes of the most difficult circumstances in life. Oh, but the way they talk about their God being good and faithful. And the reason for that is there's something altogether genuine and authentic about it. Not something rehearsed. Not something that you just studied and you're regurgitating information. But something that you've walked and experienced and you know. That person demonstrates the goodness of what it is to be with God, to be in his presence. Because I don't know about you, but every time I talk to somebody like that, I'm like, man, that's, that's good. That's what I want. Sit in the presence of our God. As we look at this, I'd encourage you later on to read Psalm 107. Verses 23 through 32 of Psalm 107 kind of chronicle uh, very much the same thing that we've seen in our passage today. Uh, almost as if John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 are a playing out of Psalm 107. But Psalm 107, that ends in verse 32, and those verses say that when they were, then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Guys, 
in view of this great deliverance in the Messiah, let us thank God. Thank him for his wondrous deeds and his abundance love in your life, in our lives as his church. Let's celebrate him together. That's what we do. We come here, we, we sing praises to him, and we celebrate him. As you gather for the Thanksgiving dinner, it's to, it's to come together and say, let's celebrate and thank God for his faithfulness to us, for his goodness, for who he is. That's our response. In Exodus chapter 14, after the nation of Israel walked through on dry ground, they looked back and they saw the Egyptians on the shore. And what a reality check that must have been for them. But Moses writes this, that he said that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Brothers and sisters, fear God. Believe in him. And as you fear God and believe in him, so too fear Jesus and believe in him. Because as he said, he is equal told us that we are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. What a theology lesson that Jesus is giving his disciples. I am the fulfillment of Israel's story. I am God in the flesh. I am the Son of God.